This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Heretic Happy Hour Podcast. Oh, my goodness. We have such an episode and a great new series that we're launching uh, with this episode um, about the religious right or maybe how wrong the religious right can really be or something like that. Um, oh, my gosh. You just It's going to be great. Get ready. Pull yourself a beverage. Uh, we're going to jump into this. But before we do, we need to do some introductions. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of your many co-hosts. I'm the author of the recently released Sola Deus, What If God Is All of Us? And I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Shonda, Katie, and sometimes Matt. Say hello. Hey, everyone. It's Katie Valentine. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. I play the harp. And I have no doubt that many of the people in the series that we're going to be talking about today in the religious right would not appreciate my metaphysical perspective on things. So definitely pour yourself a drink. You might need two unless you are suffering <laughs> the effects of trauma and alcoholism like many of the people that we're going to be looking at <laughs> <That's> today. <right. laughs> oh, yes. uh, I am Shonda Ja. I'm the author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and The Ancestors We Need to Free. I am excited about today's episode because I am here for anything that involves pool boys. Well, you're in for a treat Ooh. then. Well, this this might be the episode for you. Um, I'm not sure. I am Matthew J. DeStefano, the author of The Wisdom of Hobbits and many other books, and the proud co-owner of Choir Publishing. And oh, yeah. I am... Oh, yeah. I forgot about that thing. Um, I, yeah, I am excited about this uh, this series. However, these documentaries that we will be covering and those like them do piss me off so mm -hmm. if i get uh if we if we had that bleep button that we used to i would be donating many many shekels to the uh <laughs> to the piggy bank here yeah fair What's warning the there might be button? i don't remember this it was the, oh the cha-ching it was like the oh. it was the swear jar the swear jar the swear jar that's what it was yeah. yeah and then we realized we cussed too much to have to <laughs> micro produce all see of that, that's yeah. interesting we we have totally forget we have we've uh you know, mothballed that, that sound bite. But anybody who listened, you know, at the beginning, I'm sure they've, they've noticed like, Hey, where is that? We don't do that anymore. Yeah. Cause it's, well, it's, um, it's, it just comes down. To, it's too much work. It's, it's it's too down, much. Yeah. Like along with the hotline, you know, listeners, you can't have nice things sometimes. 
If you're, if we <laughs> have a right. jar, everyone has to participate. Everyone needs a donation. So. <laughs> That's That's right. Right. Well, should we yeah. should we preview a little bit about what we're going to be talking about after our wonderful heretic? Well, do you want to do well, it before? Or do you want to do it after? Well, tell you what. Let me oh, let me do my little uh, plug for this particular. Um, so the series, like Keith said, is something along the lines of how the religious right is wrong. Um, and we're going through a series of documentaries uh, about the religious right, uh, at least a couple of them. And today's episode uh, is focused on the documentary God Forbid uh, about, liberty, about Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. The way I have pitched it to friends when I'm trying to convince them to watch it is come for the pool boy, stay for the Christian nationalism. Yeah. And this series is totally Sean's is idea. The, is that the slogan for Liberty University? It should be the slogan for it. Should for be. it. Come for the pool boy, the stay slo- for the Christian nationalism. The slogan should be, you make Aunt Katie's eye twitch, because I had a nephew who almost <laughs> went to Liberty, and I have a niece who is at Liberty, so. Whoa. Yeah. Well, we have, yeah. a, we have a former host of the Heretic Happy Hour who attended Liberty University. That is true. Yep. Really? Yes. Look at yes. Shonda's face. You'll People never can't guess. see Shonda's face on, 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 You'll on, never on, guess on our audio-only podcast. Yeah. You'll never guess it was who me, it was, Shonda. Out- it was me. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? That should be a, a trivia question. If you know the answer to this question. All right. Yeah. Post Repeat the it at the end of the episode. That would be great. Yeah, we'll let you know at the end of the episode. It's you'll never guess. Yeah. And by the way, it's not me. So <laughs> probably people are assuming it's probably me, but it's not me. It's definitely gotta be cute. Yeah. I do when we interviewed um Kevin Max, I think he went to Liberty for mm-hmm. like a hazy mm-hmm. semester. And I was like, so why didn't you complete your time at Liberty? And he completely evaded that question. And I'm totally curious now. So Kevin, if what you're they listening, call it, you do want to know. The, um, there's something they call it, right? The, you, you violate the code or something or the orders. Yeah. Or he, like he went to a dance. He went to a dance. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Oh Et cetera. Yeah. He looked at a woman's ankles. I don't know. I don't know what All out. right. Well, as uh, listeners, as you know, um, a lot of these right wing uh, fungies, fundies, schools, documentaries focus highly on apocalypticism and eschatology. And they're talking about the end times all the time. The end time is around the corner. And we have a nice little antidote um, to that to give you a different perspective on end times with our really cool second time, second time on the show, Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Bart Ehrman. I'm widely considered a heretic. Hi, Bart. <laughs> and that is our enthusiastic uh, welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, Bart Ehrman. So excited to have you come back and join us again. I guess it wasn't so bad. You came, you decided to come back, so that's good. But um, it took five years. It just it took, took five, five years. years. That's all. Um, but hey, um, yeah, so gr- glad to have you here. And since we've already covered the, why would someone call you a heretic and how did you get to where you are now? Um, I guess what we want to know is, since it's been so long, what new heresies, uh, what new trouble have you been uh, working on uh, since we talked to you last time? Uh, well, there's been a lot. I mean, you know, heresy is bo- a bottomless pit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and uh, so, yeah, so the most recent one, um, the uh, my, my most recent book, I'm arguing, I, I, one of my main arguments is that the 
author of the book of Revelation, uh, would not have been recognized by Jesus as one of his own followers. <laughs> yes. Wow. Wow. So is that kind of the big bomb in the book? Or it's, I'm, it's about Revelation, well, right? It's about the book of Revelation. Or the, yeah. So the book's, the, the book's called Armageddon. Um, and what the Bible really says about the end. And it's, um, you know, there, it, it depends, you know, bombing is kind of a specified thing. It depends what part of the country you're in, whether, whether you get hit by the bomb or not. And so there, there are different bombs going off in the book. Uh, the, the book is really designed to show that almost all of the interpretations of Revelation that we hear about are wrong. I mean, basically there are two interpretations of Revelation. One, one is, uh, the one you, most people think is that the book Revelation is predicting what's going to happen in our future. Right. And I, um, I absolutely think that's wrong, that it's not intended to predict our future, uh, and that it's written for its own time. And so that's, that's not particularly, uh, heretical within, um, scholarly circles, because yeah. that's widely known among historical scholars. But the, the normal historical scholarship view is that the book of Revelation is meant to be a book of hope, uh, and that it's it's written for people who are feeling oppressed, who are, who are oppressed, and it's trying to show that their suffering won't last forever, that God will soon intervene and destroy the forces of evil and bring in a good kingdom. And so it's a, it's a book of hope. Um, that's how I taught the book of Revelation year after year after year. I mean, until about five years, four or five years ago. And now I think that view is also completely wrong. I don't think the book of Revelation is a book of hope. Um, it's not a book about God's love for anybody. Uh, the, the word hope does not appear in the book of Revelation. Uh, the love of God is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. Um, it's a, um, it's a very violent, uh, book about the vengeance of God and the wrath of God. And what I argue in my book is that this this portrayal of, of God and of Christ are not consistent with what the Gospels portray Jesus as saying. Wow, that's yeah, that's pretty amazing. Was there what changed your mind? So you said that for the longest time, right, four or five years, you did teach um, this other way. What what convinced you that you might rethink that or reconsider that? I decided to read the book carefully. <laughs> What? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I taught the book for years and I taught, you know, I'd written some things about it, but I decided to take a really deep, deep plunge and to read, you know, read all the scholarship and, and really to dig into the book. And once you do that, you realize that this, this view that I learned at a liberal theological seminary, at a Princeton theological seminary, it's it's not a particularly liberal place, but it's not, you know, it's not a fundamentalist school or anything. And the typical way that, that liberal Christian scholars teach the book is that it is, uh, it's trying to emphasize uh, that, that God will make everything right that is wrong. And there are, there are entire books written by um, liberal Christian scholars that argue that the book of Revelation is nonviolent and that the controlling image is the image of Christ as the sacrificed lamb, who is uh, the innocent victim. Uh, and so the controlling image is uh, non-retributive violence. I mean, you know, not non-retribution against violence. Yeah. And yeah, I just, if you, if you actually read the book carefully and suspend all judgment, there is no way the book teaches that. Uh, it's not what the book's about at all. You know, I'm, um, I'm super curious because also like you, I was taught 
and, and probably have taught right in this kind of liberative um, way of, of reading the book of Revelation. But I was reading some feminist critique recently, newer, newer feminist critique of the book of Revelation, who really criticized the depiction of of female bodies of women in the text of like Jezebel um, yep, the in the text, right? The horror of Babylon, <laughs> all of that um, as, as non-redemptive. Like there's no, there's kind of no way around that. And I'm, I'm curious if you interacted with that kind of work or kind of how you see um, if, if that's intersecting with what you were doing at all. Yeah. 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 So Tina Pippin was one of the first people uh, to, to do that kind of feminist yeah. analysis and, and a very fine book by Christopher Freilingus on spectacles of empire uh, is also dealing with that kind of thing. My book is written for a general audience. So I'll just say up front that I don't deal with scholars, you know, the way that we would if Katie, you and I were doing kind of a you know, a scholarly analysis where you'd talk about this scholarly view and, and analyze it. Uh, but the the basic idea behind the, the scholarship, I absolutely agree with. For those those people who don't know, I mean, let me just tell about the Jezebel thing because it's really completely disgusting. Um, it's in one of the letters that Christ writes. Christ writes a letter to seven of these churches in uh, Asia Minor and the church to Thyatira um, in chapter two, there's a woman there who is a leader of the church. She's a uh, prophetess in the church. And John of Patmos calls her Jezebel. Well, Jeze it's a symbolic name. Jezebel is the right. name of this wicked queen in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And Jezebel is apparently teaching people that are at least agreeing that it's okay sometimes for people to eat meat that's been uh, sacrificed to a, a pagan idol. Um, this is a debated view in early Christianity. There were Christians on both sides of this view. And um, Paul Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians, yeah. but Paul says, well, yeah, you know, you shouldn't do it. But it, it's kind of like he sees both sides. John does not see both sides. John says, this is the worst thing you could do. Eat food offered to idol. You, you're, it's like, you know, you are committing fornication. You are, and so he says, this woman is Jezebel who's allowing it, this leader of the church. And Christ says in this letter, that he will take Jezebel and throw her on a bed. Uh, by the way, some translations say hospital bed or sick bed. No, that's not the word. Throws her on a bed, and men will come and have sex with her, and he will punish these men by giving them a plague, which I'm not quite sure what that is, but it might be something. Uh, Our imagination sexual. can figure yeah, it out. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And then he will um, kill her babies. Christ. And so Christ is, Christ is throwing her on a bed so she'll have sex with men. And it's not clear whether this is willing sex, whether she's welcoming them or not. And, uh, and then he's going to give these other people a, a you know, STD, and then he's going to kill her babies. It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. This is how you're imagining this woman and this woman leader in the church? And not uh, very consistent with um, other other images of Jesus that we get uh, in earlier texts. <laughs> this is not the Jesus of the Gospels, just no. not. I'm curious what what in your kind of um, imagination do you think prompted such a person to write this? I mean, because you're right, like Revelation has such extreme images and, uh, pardon the pun, there's no room for lukewarmness in Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. No. Sorry, everyone couldn't resist. But yeah, so like what what caused this kind of, you know, extreme view, do you think, uh, by the by the author? Well, the 
I, you know, I think a lot of people read Revelation. Most most people don't read Revelation. <laughs> uh, the the only people who really read Revelation are uh, fundamentalists who are using it to kind of pick a verse here and there to go with something in Daniel and something in Zechariah, something in Matthew, and something you know to piece together some image of what's going to yeah. happen at the end of the right, world. And something on the on the nightly news that just happened. That's right. right? Yeah, to to go <laughs> to match the current headline. But most people who aren't in that camp. Don't don't read Revelation because it's just too weird and bizarre. Yep. I mean, it just it, the symbolism is just people can't make sense of it. Part, part of my book, by the way, is to explain that there's it's not really uh, it's not that difficult to understand if you have some instruction from somebody who knows how to do this historically. <laughs> Which Katie gets to your question. the The book of Revelation is part of the genre of the scholars call the apocalypse genre. Um, the apocalypse genre. It was a common way of writing in Jew Jewish and Christian circles in antiquity. And so even though the book seems weird and bizarre to us, it was simply a, 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 a genre of literature used by Jews and Christians who wanted to say that that um, the people who were on their side religiously may be suffering horribly now, but that God's going to vindicate them and they can they can look forward to God's vindication. Uh, and so you get this in a number of books that we still have, Jewish books, Second Baruch, Fourth Ezra, First Enoch, and stuff, and Christian books uh, like this. And this is the only one that makes it then into the New Testament, obviously. So I think what he's trying to do is I think he's a very, very ardent Christian who believes that God's wrath is going to be manifest. And so he's a big believer in God's justice, um, as many people today are, who are— uh, believe in God's wrath and that it's coming and that they need to implement it themselves. And uh, so he's trying to provide hope for those very, that slender group of people who happen to agree with him. Yeah. So it's Do a you, text of hope, just not for us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not it's yet. hope, but it doesn't even say, the word hope doesn't even appear in this thing. Right. I mean, but you have to assume that, he, you know, the, the, the slaves of God, they're not called his, they're not called those he, God loves, they're called his slaves, will be rewarded at the end, and everybody else will be thrown into a lake of burning sulfur. So it sounds like what this, what you're doing in this book is, uh, if I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like, um, obviously, fundamentalists and a lot of evangelicals will hate this book because they won't like what you're saying about it. Like, oh, it's not about the future? It's not telling me that Jesus is, the, the return of Jesus is closer than it's ever been. Um, but it sounds like that even a lot of liberal uh readers might also be like, hey, what are you doing? You're taking away um, my, this, um, you know, this Com sort of- Compassionate eschatology. The, the compassionate, yes, <laughs> eschatology um, that, they, that they've been comfortable with, right? So it's almost like, who are you making happy here, Bart? <laughs> Who's going to love this, this book? <laughs> this is why I'm a heretic. <laughs> so we, we want you to make as much money as Jenkins and LaHaye. You know, oh, big so time. oh boy, yeah, that's, he, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't be going on this show. He'd be. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, there are there are um, there are a lot of readers that will scholars that will agree with me on yeah. on almost everything, and and I I don't just assert these things. I try to demonstrate them. I mean, I try to mm -hmm. show why the book can't be used to predict our future, and it was never meant to predict our future. Right. And part of the key is understanding it as a historical document written in the first century in a first century context to first century readers in a way that would make sense to these readers. Um, 
So that part, I think, should be non-controversial among historical scholars. There are there there's a rift among historical scholars, though, about whether to consider this a violent book or not. Um, yeah. There are scholars who have written books claiming that, you know, the the sacrificed lamb is the guiding motif, and um, and I ju- I try to show why that's just not true. I mean, for for one thing, it's the lamb, the sacrificed lamb, who creates the catastrophes. He he sends the catastrophes on earth. He he's the one who's slaughtering people and torturing people. Yeah, um, the seven seals that are being bro- bro- uh, opened. He breaks them. The lamb yes. breaks them. Yeah. And the seven seals introduce the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets introduce the seven bulls of God's wrath. <laughs> it, just, it ain't pretty. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, do, you, do you find that it, there's a, um, a case where once th- – this seems to be the pattern a lot of times. You, you are raised conservative and evangelical, then you maybe deconstruct. You become more of a liberal Christian or a progressive Christian, and then you try to go back into the Bible and make it – harm and make the violent texts a little more nuanced or make them say something nicer when really maybe what you're asserting is like, no, this is just simply not a nice book. Right. Well, I, yeah. So, you know, when you ask, you know, who would I make happier this? I mean, I think I'll make happy people who really appreciate the portrayal of Jesus in the gospels. Right. I mean, I, I, I have, you know, I, uh, I, you know, obviously I, I, I am not a Christian, but, um, Jesus' teachings in the Gospels are, are, I think if people actually tried to follow the teachings, unlike most Christians who, who just yeah. don't, I mean, you know, they just don't. I mean, um, at least in, in my part of the world, there's a lot of violent Christians who use the Bible to support their violent views and to oppress people of who aren't like them. Uh, but, but people who appreciate the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount on We'll see that, in fact, those are those are teachings that could help people, help our society, yeah. and the Book of Revelation is not. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, that's what makes happier the people who actually like what Jesus says and did in the Gospels. Yeah, absolutely. So, is there a way then? Um, how would how would you how would you summarize then? You know, after someone reads the book, and I would encourage people to go and read the book because it sounds really fascinating. Um, so is there a way to redeem Revelation or how should we, how do we approach this book now um, after we're like, okay, we're listening to what you're saying. We're convinced that, okay, you're right about this. This is not a legitimate, um, so like you said, the, the person that wrote this, Jesus wouldn't recognize this guy and they wouldn't even know each other because they're on totally different pages. Um, so then now what do we do with this book, Revelation? I mean, do yeah. we just treat it like almost an apocryphal book, like uh, this is out there in left field. This is like something totally different. Uh, is there a way to redeem this book in any way? Yeah. I mean, I, so I had a, I interviewed a fellow um, two weeks ago from Ukraine, a, a Christian theologian from Ukraine who's, um, who had to flee. Um, mm. And he, he's living in Poland now and he's, he has a ministry dealing with refugees uh, from, from Ukraine. And, we got. I had this interview with him that was really interesting because he tried to. He was explaining to me how conservative Christians in Ukraine interpret the book, um, and you know how within American Christianity, uh, for you know since the Cold War, the I guess since probably the mid forties or 50, early fifties, the the typical interpretation of if it's predicting our future is that the Soviet Union is the enemy. And, you know, 
for a while, some, when I was in college, some, not in college, but some years ago, somebody wrote a book arguing that Gorbachev was the Antichrist, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, because he yeah. got, got the mark. Yeah, the mark, yeah, the mark on the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so, and so it's always it's too like, easy. It's, That's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy. Yeah. <laughs> too obvious. So in Ukraine, this guy was telling me, he's not supporting this, he, but he's telling me that conservative Christian readers in Ukraine um, are, think that the book of Revelation is predicting that um, what will happen is that the U.S. will support uh, Ukraine enough so that Ukraine actually wins the war and defeats Russia, and then Ukraine will be beholden to the United States, and the U.S. will use that as a uh, entry point into uh, expanding its influence throughout uh, Eastern Europe, and that um, you know in the Book of Revelation, the Beast, the Antichrist figure, controls the economy. Nobody can buy or sell without the oh, approval yeah. of the beast. And so they think that the U.S. is the Antichrist. So far, I'm agreeing with everything there, that sounds right to me. <laughs> so, so it's pretty end, likely what you just said. I'm thinking, yep, that's probably what happened. <laughs> so, so this guy then, at, you know, at the end of this interview, uh, he wanted to know kind of my, my views of things. And he, and he said, so, you know, he asked the same question you asked. You know, is there anything that I can say to my people here? Who um, you know who are believing Christians uh, the value of the Book of Revelation, and my view of it is that the overall picture, if you take out like almost all the details, but the overarching picture is in fact um, a helpful picture because it's the it's the traditional apocalyptic view, which is that good triumphs over evil, right, and that eventually. Um, evil does not have the last word. Uh, yeah. God has the last word. And that this can provide a source of hope for people to know that, in fact, uh, good will, will prevail. Uh, and so, it, you know, the, the basic teaching of Revelation is meant to do that. The way it gets there, though, is not, is not satisfying at all. It's, I mean, far beyond it. You know, I have a, um, a true confessions. I like the I like apocalypses in general and the book of Revelation because I like science fiction. And so when I first started reading them, they so resembled science fiction. I, and there's a reason why they inspire. You know, there's a reason we have a whole genre of science fiction called apocalyptic, uh, you know, apocalyptic literature. And so for that reason, I like being in it. But I would you know, it's not like I take science fiction novels or movies or anything that I interact with and take them as a blueprint. Right. All right. I take them as a kind of trauma response uh-huh. to the to the world. Yeah. And in the same way that like a little, uh, you know, a little band of oppressed people, if they had this apocalyptic worldview, I think I would empathize with it. And I can certainly empathize with this early Christian apocalyptic worldview who never expected it to become, you know, a dominant perspective yeah. in the world. It's this weird accident that it's yeah. so popular. Well, you know, when I was an evangelical, I was I had a very strong apocalyptic view because I thought, you know, Revelation was predicting the end. But even when I left evangelical Christianity, I was I was active in the church as a as a fairly liberal Christian for many years, and I retained my apocalyptic view for just the reason you're saying, Katie. It's um, I think that it's a um, I think it's a valuable view that you can you can grasp onto and and um, you know, apart from the kind of the trappings, I mean, and science fiction is is like that, and you know, and it's become so prominent now in the kind of post-apocalyptic stuff we get, in the, you know, movies and novels and such, uh, and it is kind of it is feeding into that. Um, so that part of it, I uh, I 
it, it's not that I have that theology anymore because I'm 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 not a believer. I'm an I'm an atheist, but but I think that it's a helpful view to have, and it's one that where my heart is. It's where my heart is, whether, whether my head's there or not. I have a, uh, a question. Um, do you think? I mean, I think we're all in agreement here that this is not a book about the future. But do you think there is a case to be made that if you hold such a view, that you can almost create a self-fulfilling prophecy, wherein by your foreign policy you create the things that kind of happen in the Book of Revelation? It may not be prophesying about it, but almost like our beliefs in something collectively manifest it. And because evangelicals with this worldview have so much power, have that foreign policy, they've almost brought about the same kind of scenarios. Or we could be heading toward a scenario that looks maybe kind of like that with climate change, with war, with our foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. Part of my book, one of the things I do in my book is to try and show how this futuristic view has led to some very, very bad situations in the world. Right. Uh, and part of my part, for example, I, uh, I I talk about things that people wouldn't think of. Most people wouldn't think of, for example, U.S. policy toward Israel. Um, I don't mm-hmm. I don't get into the Israeli-Palestinian situation on a personal level to say my my personal political views, mm-hmm. but I am interested in historically why evangelical Christians in particular have been such gung ho supporters of Israel. Um, there and uh, I didn't realize a lot of this before I, I did the research for the book um, that Christian Zionism was around before what we think of as Zionism. Yeah. Uh, the Christian Zionists in the early 19th century supported Israel because the prophets said that that Israel was going to be was going to go back to the land, and so Christian Zionists back in the early 19th century were urging. Uh, the establishment of Israel as a sovereign state. I did not know it went that far back. Yeah. Uh, in my book, I talk about yeah. a guy you would not have heard of um, named Louis Way, um, W-A-Y, who um, was a Brit who um, who actually more or less started a, a Christian Zionist movement back in the, you know, 1811. (laughs) And it became, it became quite important. It's, it's, it was significant in leading to the Balfour uh, Declaration uh, because I actually trace, you know, I didn't make this up. I mean, you can trace the lineage from these early Christian Zionists to the Balfour Declaration, to the establishment of Israel as a state. And of course the, you know, in the modern times, um, uh, so that was that was in fulfillment of prophecy, uh, so much so that uh, when the moral majority came along in the 1970s, uh, they really pushed for the support of Israel, so that, starting with Menachem Begin, uh, the uh, Israeli prime ministers realized there are more evangelical American, Christian evangelical Americans than there are American Jews, and so we need to go after the American evangelicals. And so Begin and then Netanyahu back in the 80s was going to evangelical prayer breakfasts <laughs> and saying, you know, we have common cause because, you know, we're on the same side with this thing. So my point about all this is, uh, Matthew, in re- response to your your question, the uh, the prophecies that evangelicals have long heeded not only talk about Israel becoming a self-governing state again, but also require the temple to be rebuilt. Um it's it isn't because of revelation directly but it is because of second thessalonians chapter 2 where the lawless one who's a kind of an antichrist figure 
uh, when he rises up in power, he enters into the temple of God and declares himself God. And that's the kind of the beginning of the end. Uh, and evangelicals have long noted <laughs> that this requires a temple to be built. Uh, but unfortunately, on the Temple Mount, where the temple would be built is where the Dome of the Rock is. Yep. And so there are ultra-conservative uh, Jews who have an institute for rebuilding the temple. Uh, and they've they've made the gar they made the vestments they've made the the uh, menorah they've made they made the stuff they need uh, they've got a red red heifer to sacrifice and yes, the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, and there are fundamentalist groups also so in terms of uh, Matthew being a self fulfilling prophecy if uh, if Israel goes after the Temple Mount um, and uh, you know if they destroy the Dome of the Rock that's absolutely World War Three. Right. How, how's well, that going to be avoided? There's violence going on there on the Temple Mount right now, though, as we're recording this. So yeah, I mean, no, the and, last and I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. the last couple of weeks, and it's, and it's, it's a question of how how much the the far right takes over uh, in Israel with American support. But the you know the reason that evangelical Christians, most evangelical Christians, don't realize the history of this because they just think. They think something kind of vague, like Israel is the people of God or something. Right. Or, but but in fact, there are very specific prophecies that involve uh, rebuilding the temple. And uh, that's where it can get really dicey. I have a, um, a comment observation, which is we've all said the name of this book correctly throughout the entire episode. And Bart, I'm wondering if you'll elaborate what is the correct name of the book and why is there not an S on it? Oh, that that book. I thought you meant my book. I mean, how hard is it to pronounce Armageddon? Right, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Katie. You two have a theological education, and it drives you nuts <laughs> when you hear yes. people saying, people say revelations. They yes. always say this. And yeah. it just, yeah. I tell my students, if they get... If I hear the word revelations from their from their mouth referring to this book, that they're going to be cast into the outer darkness with this weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> it's it's not revelations. It's revelation. It's and one revelation. People, yeah. people don't know this, but um, the word revelation comes from a Latin word, revelatio. And revelatio is the Latin equivalent or the Latin translation of the word apocalypsis, apocalypsis in Greek, which is where we get apocalypse from. So that's why people sometimes call it the apocalypse of John or the revelation of John. It's the same. It's the same word, one in Greek and one, one in Latin, but it's not apocalypses of John <laughs> and it's not <laughs> the revelations yeah. of John. It's singular. But there are, there are multiple revelations, correct? The other outside of canon uh, to Peter, correct? Um, one yeah, John. there are. I mean, uh, yeah. So there right. are. There's an. Uh, the Apocalypse of Peter almost made it into the New Testament. Actually, it was, right. There were debates about in the fourth up up through the fourth century whether the Apocalypse of Peter should be included, uh, or the Apocalypse of John, or neither, or both. <laughs> mm, yeah. And uh, one won, and the other lost. <clears throat> well, uh, I, I'm, I've been of the opinion that Revelation <laughs> is. Such a problematic book, not not in itself necessarily, but just because of the way it has been so horribly misused by so many people. Um, that yeah, I, I almost wish it wasn't in in the canon because it's just I think it does more harm than good in so many ways. Like I still have a copy; I saved it. Uh, I have a copy of the book Eighty Eight Reasons Why Christ yes. Will Return in Nineteen Eighty Eight. 
I don't have, have the, the sequel. I don't have the sequel. Eight, Eighty-nine reasons, but that's a lot of reasons <laughs> to all be wrong. And yeah, well, and, and, yeah. and it doesn't stop anybody. No matter how many of these books get published, the, even if you, if even if you're the one that published the book that was a complete flop, you could publish one tomorrow and sell a million copies. Like the the appetite for this kind of thing, right? People that know the future, people that can make sense of this mysterious book that is, you know, so so confusing and uh, so much imagery and, and metaphor that people just will eat this up, you know, and, and there seems to be no end to it. It's a lot more exciting to think that it's, that it predicted Russia's invasion of yeah. Ukraine mm-hmm. than it is to think that John's actually saying that Rome's going to be destroyed. Right. I mean, who cares about right. Rome being destroyed? That's 2000 <laughs> years ago. I want to hear about Putin, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. uh, and so, but you're right. I mean, in my book, I actually start with this 88 reasons why the rapture will oh, be really? in 1988. Oh, oh, awesome. It's my opening line because it, what, because it's, there's a kind of a personal story connected with it. When I, I started teaching at Chapel Hill, so I teach at UNC, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, obviously in the South. I came here from Rutgers, so I had been teaching at Rutgers up in New Jersey. And when I moved down to, uh, to Chapel Hill in 1988. Oh, wow. Um, I was, um, I hadn't, you know, I, I, I knew this was going to be different because my, my students in New Jersey, you know, they weren't, many of them were Jews. Some were, um, some, some were Muslim, some were atheists. There were, there weren't too many, you know, Bible reading evangelicals in my classes. When I came down here, I'm coming to the Bible belt. And even though, you know, Chapel Hill isn't known as a bastion of conservative thought, but you know, the students are from the South. As, as a rule. So I moved down here thinking, okay, this will be different. Uh, two weeks after I get here, I get a phone call from a uh, local reporter, a newspaper reporter, who, uh, who has heard that I'm a New Testament scholar, just moved to teach at Chapel Hill, and he's got an urgent question for me. Uh, is it true that Jesus is coming back next month? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, well, yeah, no, it's not. And he was kind of disappointed, but, uh, you know, I told him, well, look, you know, it's, it's going to be okay for you either way, because if he does come back, then, you know, you'll be, you won't be around to, to worry about it. If he doesn't come back, you can have seven years of really good reporting to, to give when the yeah. tribulation hits. But it, he's asking because this book, uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988 had come out. There were 2 million copies in circulation. Yeah. Um, and the guy was named Edgar Weissnant. Yeah. He, he was a smart guy. He started out as a, a rocket engineer for NASA, uh, but then he, he wrote this book, and it had 88 Reasons uh, Why it was 1988. And people took it seriously. I, I had a oh, student yeah. in my class that semester whose parents literally sold the farm. Oh, oh yeah! Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah people, people were doing that to with. Uh, remember Harold, Harold Camping, right? Yes. People yeah, were selling same, everything, yeah. everything they had. Yeah. Well, people didn't know. People, what people don't know about camping is that you know he, it was a big deal there at the end. But he first, his first book was a very big book showing that it was going to happen in 1994. Uh. uh and when it didn't happen on the day he predicted, it was like March 21st or something. They shifted it to September 21st. Then he shifted it to October 21st. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, he just gave up for a few years. And then he then he went on with a more recent thing. And um, he, to his credit, after his uh, final prediction failed, he also kept changing the date there at the end. When the final one failed, he finally gave up. And he said, um, I was wrong. I've sinned. Yeah. And um, 
he taught he died uh two years later as a disappointed man because he really yeah. wow. thought oh you're managing to find the you're managing to find the humanity in this <laughs> guy i mean he was sincere Oh, sure. sincere. Seems like yeah. he was sincere in his wrong, disillusion. You know? Yes, and, and then sure. and see, this is the thing. It's like the 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 fallout, the damage to people's lives. Who who in good faith they they do think this is predicting oh. something. It is it is about yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Um, no, in Capping's Capping's, Capping's church, people were bankrupting themselves to yeah. support the hundred million dollar campaign to get people to repent. Um, there's a really good documentary about this by uh, what's it, Zeke Peelstrup uh, on camping that oh, does, wow. uh, and it's it, and he um, Zeke's followed him around before the end came. I mean, he was following him for some months and taping him in front of his congregation and talking to people and and then afterwards as well. And uh, it's really quite Ooh. stunning. Wow. Well, um, this is it's so so exciting that you're coming with this new view. I know our listeners are going to um, want to get a hold of it. So the book the book is already out, correct? That's right. And what's yeah. the best? Where's where should people pick it up? They can get it at any uh, you know any indie uh, bookstore can order it. Uh, they can get it where they normally get books if they normally get books on Amazon or or at a regular bookstore. Um, uh, so uh, just if they just you know look it up Armageddon, it's it's readily available. Yeah. And they need to get it soon because you don't know when the end's going to come. That's right. You better hurry now up. Now that's a pitch. That's a pitch. Come on, you got some Everybody marketing needs to go there. out immediately because you know what? You don't. You know, the answers are in this book, everybody, and you got to read it and you got to find out. Um, it's in Kindle, audiobook, hardcover uh, editions, even an audio CD. Do they still do that? So people can oh. order a CD. That's what really? it says on Amazon, anyway. Okay. Didn't know that. So, well, hey. if you support indie bookstores, go pick it up at the indie bookstores. Yeah. If you love Amazon, we will link in the show notes for sure. If the tribulation comes, we're going to need those CDs. That's right. How to survive. We're going to need them so, for those seven years. <laughs> the the, right, the problem is we'll the CD that player. <laughs> <laughs> batteries. We're going to need a lot of batteries. Lots of batteries. CD player. And- <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, Bart, thank you. This has been so great. I uh, appreciate everything you do. And... Um, Oh yeah, where else can people find you and other things that you're, besides the book? I mean, uh, well, I yeah, there are a couple of things I wouldn't mind plugging. Uh, one yes, is my, plug away. One is my blog, uh, and so if people don't know. I've, I've got a blog. It's just called the Bart Ehrman Blog. Uh, it's at ermanblog.org. I post five times a week, uh, twelve hundred to fourteen hundred words a day. I've been doing it for almost eleven years, um, and I've not missed a week. And I deal with every. Uh, just everything that people are interested with respect to the New Testament, historical Jesus, uh, gospels, apocryphal books, uh, non-canonical stuff, uh, going up to the Emperor Constantine and everything related, Hebrew Bible, whatever oh, that yeah. people are interested in. People can write comments on every blog post. I, I've answered every question I've ever gotten on it. Wow. Uh, but so there's a there's a small mem- membership fee. Um, and I don't get any of the money myself and I, and I, and none of the fee goes to overhead at all. There's no overhead costs from the fees. Um, it all goes to charity. Uh, and so the, I give all the money to charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. Um, last year, uh, the blog raised over $500,000. Wow. Uh, wow. and so people, I'm trying to get the word out more cause we could grow it a lot more. And I, so, so just ermanblog.org, they can just check it out. See, see if this kind of thing you're interested in. Follow the other up thing, question: Where do you yeah. find the time? 
Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> for that, I want your time management course. Can you create that? Like two blogs a week. Like Seriously. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I know. I, I don't watch a lot of TV. <laughs> Good for you. That's so, fair. So the, um, the other thing, though, is that I've started a, um, uh, uh, um, kind of a lecture thing, uh, a remote lecture thing on, it's on my website, barterman.com. It's separate from the blog. Um, but it, it's, um, I've got a lecture coming up on April 15th on, uh, on the rapture and it's called, uh, will you be left behind a history of the rapture and awesome. uh, people can come to it live or they can buy the course by, by the afterwards. It'd be like a 50 minute lecture with a long Q and a after it. But I've also done like eight lecture courses. Um, like a, my most recent one was an eight lecture course on the gospel of Mark, uh, with, uh, two sets of Q and A's with it. So it was eight 45 minute lectures. And so, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to give like uh, remote lectures. The whole idea, the whole idea, like all the stuff that I'm doing is that I really want to get not, I want knowledge of what scholars say about the new Testament, early Christianity, Jesus and stuff. I want the knowledge to get out there because there's mm-hmm. so much misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these are two ways that two ways that I do it. I love it that you're making that accessible um, because so much scholarly work is really inaccessible. And so this is a real gift listeners. Um, You're, you're listening to a top-notch scholar, well-respected. So everyone go check out those, um, those sites and those opportunities. Yeah, you know, Katie, the problem is that you know too from having done a PhD in this is that most of us who are trained are not are not trained how to speak to normal human beings about what we do. <laughs> no, the longer your sentences and the more twenty five cent words you have, the better. Which is yes. maddening. Yeah, no, so this is fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I mean, people people just can't say they can't stop themselves from saying things like, "Well, you know, when you're dealing with a synoptic problem, you need to realize its benefits for redaction criticism." Yeah, it's just like, like, and like what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, thanks, well, Bart. It's been such a thank treat. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you all. Thank you. Appreciate it. There's nothing that kicks off a right-wing documentary series than <laughs> none other than Bart Ehrman. Bart Bart freaking Ehrman. Yeah. I feel like we should have had him after just to kind of be a palate <laughs> cleanser to, so people can recover. Yeah. Um, I know I mentioned it to him, but I, I can just so distinctly picture my intro to New Testament textbook that I had that he wrote um, when I was a freshman in college. And that thing stayed with me for like at least 15 years, maybe 20 years. Like I still mm-hmm. referred back to it even in my yeah. my more advanced graduate study. So that was so cool to be able to meet him. You don't have it anymore? You still don't have it? It did not make the cut for some move. <sighs> it was not adequately kind of, metaphysical. I'd, that'd be kind of fun it to was, have. It was not... Yeah, it was it, it was fun to have. I didn't know I'd be interviewing him when I when I got yeah. rid of it. That thing was tattered and it was a soft cover and it had my um notes in it from when I was 18 that were no longer that relevant. Right. So oh, that's still pretty cool. Still pretty go cool. back to the yeah, earth. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, well Shonda, who this wants is to your... have the uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Shonda's brainchild, like this this uh series is Shonda's idea, so um And I do have to say, like, I am, I am super passionate about this. I'm going back to grad school, uh, partly because I have a dream of starting a religious left think tank that is very much uh, driven by this idea of we need our own version of the Heritage Foundation. We need our own multi-faith leftist 50-year vision holding think tank. But um, 
part beautiful. of where that comes from is having spent 30 years studying the religious right. And all of a sudden there's this huge resurgence of interest in that subject, which I think is good news uh, because it can make us aware more clearly of why we're living in the hellscape we're in right now and also get us clearer on what we can do about it. So the documentary, God forbid, which is found on Hulu uh, is about Jerry Falwell Jr., not senior. Uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. was the guy who founded Thomas Road Baptist Church, founded the Moral Majority, um, terrorized America through the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Um, But his son was the inheritor of his legacy and uh, until not too long ago was the president of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, So this documentary focuses on him. It is salacious. It is fun uh, in terms of like, if you like watching train wrecks and then it gets kind (laughs) of intense about um, the impact that these uh, these folks have had on the trajectory of the country. So where do we want to jump in? The pool. Jump in the pool, the deep end. <laughs> jump in the deep end right away. I got to say, like, I had joined in on all of the jokes because I dislike Jerry Falwell Jr. so much. But, like, I got to say, this uh, this show had me being like, oh, right, Giancarlo Gra- Granda has a name. He's a whole person. And I don't know that uh, I had a tendency to think of him that way. Katie. So um, I'll jump in with thank you for clarifying it was Junior because I have such a distaste for the Falwells that I saw, I kind of saw the scandal, but managed to not invest in it at all. And so when I went to go watch the documentary, I, I thought, this guy looks too young to be Jerry Falwell. And then I remembered the Jerry Falwell I was thinking of was dead. And I looked it up and he died in 2007. So I was still back in like the 90s in my head. Um, so this is, in fact, the sun. Um, and I just want to put out there, they showed lots of clips of he and his wife. I forget her name. Uh, Becky? Becky? I want to say Becky, Becky too. Right. Yes, yes, Becky. Becky. Yeah, Becky. Um, and one of the clips, they uh, they were talking about how they met. They met when she was 13. I think and he, he was, was 18, 18 or, or 16. And yeah, like, yeah. So that's where we're starting, y'all. Right there. That's no where red we're flags. Uh, no red flags no there. Flags, no. no grooming there. So what could be? What uh, could be wrong with that? <laughs> seriously. Um. But I wonder if someone does. Someone feel like they can maybe just give an overview of the scandal, like kind of the basics of what happened, and then maybe we can analyze. Would that be helpful? Um. I could say something. I guess uh, I'll try. Um, most people, I think, were aware when it would hit the news, or that you might remember it anyway. Um, but yeah, Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, um, has this, you know, he, he's, he runs Liberty University. He's kind of a weirdo. He had already, even before this, had all kinds of sound bites of saying awful things about Muslims. And, you know, just he was a kind of a gaff machine a little bit. And anyway, uh, the scandal came out that um, he uh, and his wife were involved in a sexual uh, relationship with a pool boy uh, that they met in Florida. And he, I think the time was what, 20, maybe 21 um, years old. And uh, the deal was that basically they went up to the hotel room and the young man had sex with uh, Becky while Jerry watched. 
Uh, that was the beginning of a wonderful relationship. <laughs> That's how it starts. <laughs> and it goes downhill from there. And it, it has a lot to do with like real estate investing, investing right? Mm-hmm. Like it has to yeah, do with uh, big multi-millionaire or million dollar deals and things like that, right? Yeah. I think this is where it's the, it starts to unravel. I mean, this is not where it starts to unravel. This is the beginning of what will eventually lead to the unraveling, right? Yeah. If I think if it had just stayed the icky, um, <laughs> you know, uh, grooming the pool boy thing. Um, who knows? And maybe nothing would have happened, but, but, um, uh, Jerry well, can we, Jr. Can, can I, can to, I interject yeah, and just yeah. make sure that we don't like, we don't want to shame anyone for whatever kinks they're into. Sure. So it's, it's not about that necessarily. It's about yeah. maybe the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think to me, the icky part of it is the, it's the, um, it's and the documentary does a good job of putting yeah. this out. It's, um, how, you know, Liberty University has this code we talked about, right? And so he's ahead of this thing. And, and they will fine you hundreds of dollars if you break any of these things, like you have sex or you drink alcohol, you dance or you gamble or you smoke, you know, and they strictly enforce this for all the students on the campus. In the meantime, the founder, the, the not the founder, but the president and his wife are going off and doing, breaking every single one of those rules and having a great time. Um, so that's, you know, that's also well, like, and well, worse and worse. Like Shonda just said, it's the grooming. It's not just yes. the act itself or doing the hip- hypocritical stuff. It's the grooming of younger, impressionable, uh, power dynamic sort of thing there. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we shouldn't be surprised since that's kind of how their relationship started. So, uh, they're just mm. passing it on. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there was a real the real estate thing happens. I think you get the impression in the documentary that the reason why Jerry sort of starts roping this pool boy, his name is I can't remember his name, Gianni? John Carlo. John Carlo. Uh, the reason why he starts he 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 wants to basically um, create some hooks in this guy so he will not leave. So the it's so the carrot and and um, well, I guess they're both carrots. <laughs> One carrot is of course having sex with the wife. The other carrot is um, like a multi-million dollar real estate deal that they just hand to him um, and make him. So he sees dollar signs. And he sees, oh my gosh, I go from being, he's never even been to college. And now all of a sudden he's a pool boy. And next thing you know, is he's in the middle of this multi-million dollar real estate deal. Um, and then they're also flying him. You know, he's meeting Trump. He's, they're flying him to New York. I mean, um you know, he, he sort of gets to a taste of a life that he could never have otherwise, um, or at least one that he'd never had at that point. And, and that's part of the way that they're keeping him on this string, right? That he will not, because he tries to leave. That's what's so funny. You know, the first time, or maybe the first couple of times, he's like, hey, this is kind of just fun. But at some point he does like say, yeah, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's when they kind of find ways to kind of keep him, keep him uh, on the hook, which is, the real estate deal, which the real estate deal is what eventually leads to the crash and burn. Yeah. And um, Keith brought up that Trump makes quite a few appearances in the documentary, not, um, I mean, clips of Trump, like with all, with all of these people, cause it's real estate, but it was also, I believe that the um, relationship with John Carlo began in 2015. So this is like, no, a little earlier. I thought it was 20 earlier, 2012, maybe 2013. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. So long before anyone ever thought that Trump would ever run for president, probably including him. Um, and so, but the all of the relationships continue on through the 2016 and beyond um, election. So they, there's all sorts of entanglements here that are 
just kind of weird and um, lots of hypocrisy, lots of, but lots of trauma too. Like yeah. Becky is, you know, she meets her future husband who inherits this crazy Christian legacy and she's groomed. Yeah. And then she perpetuates the same trauma on someone else. So I see the cycle of, uh, of violence yeah. and of, um, of trauma and of like all, I mean, so there's some sadness in there in the middle of the ick factor um yeah. for me as well and so many of the recorded like when john carlos started recording the phone calls they're both really inebriated yeah, yeah they're really like more, yeah. more than a glass of wine like they're slurring um they're slurring when they're talking to him um so there, there's all sorts of um coping barely barely getting by kind of um underneath the surface of the shiny um illustrious stage version of becky and yeah. Jerry. Well, there's also, right. They make a, they make a point that Jerry often is seen drinking quote unquote yeah. water that is actually yeah. tequila. And, um, and there's even a clip of him. speeches to the whole yeah. school. Yeah. Yeah. He's standing yeah. in front of the convocation right in this big massive stadium and with, with this glass of quote unquote water and he's slurring and he's spilling it. Oops. You know, and he's like hot laughing and like, he's obviously hammered. Uh, so that, he's we, that was in the spirit. He's slaying <laughs> the spirit. <laughs> I appreciate um, a good do- okay. double entendre. Uh, okay, so I have, I have two questions. One, um, do we think that Jerry and Becky, I guess, are like are they true believers? Like, do they actually believe in the stuff that they preach, or is it like all show? Is it all show? Um, and then, second, I, I would love to talk a little bit. And Shonda, I feel like you are a person to lead us through this. Um, talk about like going decades into the past, the alliance mm-hmm. between. Mm-hmm. Um, the this kind of Christian right of Jerry Falwell Sr. and yeah. uh, politics, which was pretty new when he when that began. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah first of all, do we think they're true believers? Well, not that I would know, but if I had to guess based on if I, just looking at the documentary, I'll just say that because I don't know them any other way. If just looking at the documentary, if I had to guess, I would I get the impression that Jerry Falwell Jr. um didn't buy into the the religion the way his father did. He didn't have any aspirations of like being a pastor or a minister or anything like that. He went to law school. He got into real estate. He only, he only got roped into the university because of his dad uh, to kind of bail them out of some financial issues. And then he gets handed this position. And so I I don't see any indication that he was really um, a true believer. I think he just saw that, Oh, I need to pretend to be to do this job. This job is supposed to be the president of the largest Christian university in the war- in America. So, um, yeah, I need to play the part. That's what it came across to me, anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Matt? Um, yeah, I don't know, and I don't care. Like, I, I feel like we've just been um, we've had so many people. Like, if you ask me the same question about like Donald Trump, I'd say no. I mean, obviously not from what we can tell. But I, I never read too much into it because sometimes it's like what are the true believers? And when we, when we write, when we write off anyone as like a true believer, I think, I feel like it, it, um, kind of gives that type of Christianity a pass when it's like, Oh, it's not real Christianity. And it's like, well, maybe, but also I I don't know. I want to call that what it is. And it's, it's a type of Christianity and maybe it's sincere to them and maybe it's not. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But yeah, I do like the judge it by its impact kind of framing. Mm-hmm. Like, we shall know them by their fruits, right? I feel like mm-hmm. I heard that someplace. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's some logic to that. Because, yeah, I mean, 
his dad definitely was someone who believed and was also a, a showman, right? Like, so there was a lot of, a lot of taking things way more over the top than maybe was his instinct. Like that's definitely true of his father. I think, you know, with his father, it might've been uh, 70% um, show and 30% belief, even though he was very faithful, that it was just that level of show. And I think mm-hmm. with uh, Jerry Jr., uh, it's a lot more show and a lot less faith, but ultimately they were both destructive figures. So mm-hmm. maybe that's yeah. in, impact over intent maybe is how to look at it. I think it's an interesting question. Katie, did you have thoughts on it? I, I'm not even sure if I do. Um, I think Becky probably is. Uh, a, like I think she probably does believe in, mm-hmm. the, yeah. in the stuff that they're preaching, right? Like she was indoctrinated yeah. into it at, the, at such a young age. Um, he, I couldn't tell about him that, that, and we, you know, we all have hypocritical parts within ourselves. Hopefully I don't to that degree. Um, right. So we all like say things and do other things. So I, you know, that's just part of being human. Um, Paul talks about that in Romans, right? Like I, I do the things that I hate and I don't do the things that I say that I love. Right. So I, I can see that, but it's such a, it's such a destructive scale him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like he lost any kind of sense of moral compass and I'm kind of wondering, that he grew up in such such a place of privilege and of mm-hmm. uh, of influence, so I'm kind of wondering mm-hmm. if he was just mm-hmm. born into this. I will, I can just fuck around. Yeah, it just does. Like I'm not, you know, like that just might be. I'm not. I don't know if he's conscious. Like I don't. I guess what I'm asking is myself: is are they consciously being hypocritical, or are they just doing mm-hmm. it? Yeah, because <laughs> they're. Yeah, yeah. You know, interesting question, right? Well, I think eh. I think you have the uh, sometimes the the desire for power makes us unconscious to the things yeah. unless we, unless we actively yeah. want to pay attention to it. And he has there's I mean he's handed power. Yes, yeah, a whole and, lot of power. Yeah. Um, if Tolkien, if the scriptures of Tolkien teach us anything, of course. <laughs> I love it, and it's wait, it's particularly wait, striking because. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I figured. I figured the punchline was obvious. It's going to blind yes. us. It's going to blind us to the things we're doing. You know, um, it doesn't give him a pass. But it there is. Um, are are we ever really conscious to our own hypocrisy? I think only when we are being mindful and paying attention to it. And people like that don't seem to do that very often, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's one of the things that is why I'm excited. We're talking about this on this particular show is. I think there are a few resources that sum up the arc of the religious right better than this documentary in such a succinct way. And I'm particularly excited about that because I think it's important for us to know. Uh, I imagine that for some of our listeners, it's not unfamiliar. And for others, as we look back on the history, we can connect dots that we didn't realize were there. So one of the things that the documentary ends up spending, I'd say the better part of the second half on is, you know, initially the religious right, the hill they were going to die on insofar as there was a formalized religious right in the fifties and sixties was segregation. And at a certain point they're like, Oh, that's not, that's not going to fly. We're not going to be, that just doesn't have enough traction. (laughs) So they start sending up test balloons, right? Um, we're going to stand against the ERA, women's equality. We're going to stand against pornography because surely people will get on our side about that. Um, interestingly enough, it 
didn't catch as much fire as you would think. Although in the 80s, it creates the very strange bedfellows of radical feminists in the religious right. Um, they they decide they're going to test run um, the dangers of the LGBTQ community. And up until this point, up until, yeah, up until this point, abortion had been considered a Catholic issue. Um, it was very much part of Catholic doctrine. It was not formally a part of Protestant doctrine one way or the other. And in fact, a lot of Protestant and Jewish uh, leaders in the 1950s and 1960s actually formed an underground to help women get abortions before it was legal. The Protestant church was actively, uh, Protestant leaders were actively involved in moving Roe v. Wade forward because who was more likely to know the women who died or the women who couldn't get access to abortions than their pastors? A lot of uh, Protestant mainline church leaders were very involved in supporting abortion rights leading yes. up to Roe v. Wade. Um, and the the documentary actually talks about how Jerry Falwell preaches on abortion for the first time five years after Roe v. Wade. Yep. And it's That's because right. he's seen what the Roman Catholic, uh, and I don't want to speak about the Roman Catholic Church as a monolith, but conservative Roman Catholic leaders had already test run anti-abortion candidates in four Senate races and won. So he realizes there's some traction to be gained here. I think it's mm -hmm. worth acknowledging and noting that the history of Christians in America was not this right wing anti-abortion monolith going back decades and decades. Um, that that was an intentional shift uh, when evangelicals realized segregation was no longer the issue they could afford to hinge things on. I really loved, yeah, I really loved uh, Anthea Butler uh, was one of the people they interviewed. And she said, yeah. it's much easier to say you don't believe in abortion than to say you don't want a little black girl on the bus with you. And that mm -hmm. leads to the founding of the moral majority. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that to me, you're, you're, uh, your tagline, Shonda, at the beginning is dead on. You know, you you watch this initially for like, oh, the scandal and the salaciousness of this affair. But to me, the real reason to watch it is the takedown of evangelical Christianity, Jerry Falwell specifically, his role in the religious right. Uh, it does a fantastic job of that. And it's crazy to me to watch this on Hulu because it it's like so it sounds like some kind of progressive Christian documentary uh, on that side anyway. Um, uh, it's funny because, like you said, the uh, the, the documentary also makes a point that, you know, prior, so ba well, during, during the MLK marches, right? When MLK was around, MLK was doing the marches and all that stuff for racial equality. That's when Falwell was the most vocal about how Christians should not be political. Right. That was his stance. And so that right. was his criticism of why he, yeah, how, <laughs> This is why Christians should not be involved in politics. Let's just preach the gospel and yeah. you know, you know, move on until, right, it becomes this issue about, you know, the government starts cracking down on uh, racial equality in universities and they're going to lose their tax exempt status. And all of a sudden, he then he starts preaching on tax exemption. Yeah. Uh, not tax exemption. He starts preaching on, on Christians need to be involved in politics. Exactly. Uh, so it's very convenient, like you said. So I can't help but give a plug because... Um, in my book, Jesus Untangled, I, I talk about a lot of that, go into some details about that. Because that, that thing, that detail that it talks about in the documentary is fascinating about how 
the, the Southern Baptist Convention, their former president, uh, W.A. Criswell, published a response after Roe v. Wade. And this is a quote. He says, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Also, uh, a guy named Barry Garrett in the Baptist Press wrote an article where he said, religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision. So these are the kind of things like it's like a different world yeah. Right before Falwell decides to push for this anti-abortion movement thing, um, to like what you would couldn't, couldn't even imagine that that at some point Christians were like saying, "No, Roe v. Wade was great. It was a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. God, God ordained it. God blessed it. It's a good thing. Let's support it." And it's not until Falwell um, starts leading the charge and getting involved, in, you know, very much in Reagan's campaign that we see that kind of stuff happen. Um. So uh, just a couple of thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree. That was all really illuminating. So Shonda, thank you for pointing us towards this documentary because there was a lot of that I just didn't know, um, partly because I'm very comfortable keeping my eyes sort of very close to this kind of thing because it could be really stressful. So I appreciate the supportive yeah. therapeutic environment here to uh, to discuss all of this. <laughs> but um, you know, it's interesting because in the 60s, there was a small group of evangelicals who actually led the way for integration. Yes. Um, so a, oh, yeah, a lot yeah. like Falwell were were obviously pro segregation, um, and you know yeah. it, until right that wasn't working for them anymore. And so it's interesting that that was a um, probably a split within evangelical movements uh-huh. um, fifty uh-huh. years ago, and uh, around abortion debates, et cetera. Right. It's interesting. It's it's only been a debate in recent years, um, and and probably yeah. with the advent of more modern technology, um, medical intervention. Yeah. That's more than midwife, like midwives or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a neighbor or something like that. Um, and uh, and mainline pastors are still help assisting women yeah. in getting uh, in getting abortions where needed. Yeah. So it's something yeah. that's never, uh, never stopped. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I know we're yeah. getting to the point of wrapping up. So I want to throw in my last three thoughts. Uh, one is that I think it's important for us to recognize the impact of, you know, this isn't just a lot of terrifying talk, but the documentary did a good job of talking about the increase in hate crimes and the shift Mm -hmm. in culture that Mm -hmm. was contributed to both by Jerry Sr. and Jr. Um, They both had a great deal of tolerance for violence by the religious right. Um, Since 1977, there have been 11 murders, 42 bombings, 196 arsons, 491 assaults, and thousands of incidents of criminal activities directed at patients, providers, and volunteers in abortion clinics. Uh, That was something that uh, the National Abortion Federation reported on recently. I think it's worth noting uh, the tolerance for violence that's a part of that movement. Uh, We're still watching test balloons, right? Anti-gay as a religious right, bathroom bills, the war on Christmas, uh, Mm -hmm. trans people in sports. Those are all test balloons that are getting run all over the country um, as the religious right tries to figure out where they can get foothold and where it's not working. And the last thing I want to note is how the fuck did Tom Arnold become a hero in any story? (laughs) Seriously. That was a plot twist I did not see coming. Oh, that's a spoiler. Spoiler. Tom Arnold, he comes in to save the day. Yes. (laughs) Didn't see that coming. 
Um, so yeah, any, any final thoughts? One, uh, really only one, because Shonda summarized everything better better than I could and actually looked up statistics. Thank you. The uh, It was a little blast from the past to see Paula White, that uh, female yeah. woman pastor who like speaks in tongues. And I think it was during the 2020 election, right? Like she yeah. was like, oh, calm yeah. and down hard. Like Trump's going to win. Biden's going to be and uh it was strange to see her kind of appearing again but so interestingly i think it was the family of john carlo of the pool boy i mean his sister yeah. got a lot of her time in the documentary and she i thought she was very thoughtful and well spoken yeah. and spoke about it he, he underwent some serious crises some serious mental yep. health crises under all the pressure yeah. and stress yes. of being on tv and a lot of jokes and but they talk about her and i think it was john carlo's sister who said oh i finally realized they're all a show so her yeah. analysis, Paula White, like has nothing genuine about her, that it's all a yeah. stage, it's all a front to get in this yeah. position of power. I have no knowledge of Paula White, nor do I wish to. Um, but I, I well, my friend Amy, that was her Sunday school teacher. And my oh. friend Amy was like, no, she's always been that way. Wow. I, yeah. t- I took one of her, I took that, that speech that she gave and turned it into a remix on YouTube for anyone who wants oh, to listen. Oh, I do remember oh, yeah. that now. Oh, Post that. Post that in the show notes. Please, please. I yeah, in the show notes. I would definitely do that. My, I mean, I, I'll get quick last thought before Keith, I let you uh, have a last thought here before we wrap up. Um, say what you want about the morality of abortion, all that, but what, what, I don't know if anyone needs to hear this listening, but historically speaking, you only care about abortion because segregation didn't stick. Yep. Yeah. The only reason yeah. you care about it yeah. from a historical standpoint. That's right. And you might have, you might have a moral argument and we can, that's a d- discussion probably for a different time, but historically speaking, it's only in the front of your mind because Jerry Falwell and his ilk wanted to keep black people and white people separate. Let's just, just, just sit there. Don't, don't react to that. All the Ben Shapiro's of the world who like to be reactionary, just sit with that and just let it sit. And then you don't have to listen to the show anymore. <laughs> no, listen to the next, the next documentary too. But some people need to hear that kind of stuff because it's like, it's true. And this documentary does a great job. And Shonda, you point that out. Like, that's why you picked this one first, I think. is <laughs> because that does a, such a good job of like, yeah, we come for the it, ick. We like to watch that stuff on TV. Yep. We all love that like kind of guilty pleasure stuff. But then you leave this documentary like that wasn't a guilty pleasure. That was like some shit that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And we need to all like kind of sit with that and wrestle with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. My, I guess my final thought is, um, and I kind of already said this, I guess, but I think um, I'm just blown away. And thank you, Hulu and whoever produced this documentary. Please give us more like this because it's a well-researched, highly you know, effective documentary exposing um, the religious right and the evangelical Christian movement and um, all the political politicization of things and how, how they've gotten basically how we have gotten to the point we are now, where we have someone like Donald Trump in power, where we have political, um, you know, uh, actors who will pretend to be Christian, right? Cause they understand, Oh, if I say the right words and say the right, right catchphrases, you know, the Bible is my favorite book and two Corinthians is my favorite. Like you're just, at, but you know what I mean? It's like, you're throwing meat to the, to the sharks you get everybody cheering and happy and they, they believe all that matters is that they, be, they believe that you're on their side, that they believe you're part of the team so that you can manipulate them to get your votes and get whatever you want. Um, you know, I, I talk about it in, in the, uh, in my book and talk about it in, in my blogs and things like this, 
it's I call it the shiny red button, right? And it's the it's you just have to have an uh, an issue that you know that when you bring it out and people get upset and they, they get angry, you can motivate them to do whatever you want. And that's what abortion has been. Um, and it's continuing to be a political football. Um, I, I just, I'm really grateful for this documentary for exposing this kind of stuff and hopefully more people will watch it and wake up because it's, mm. it's all a game. Wake up sheeple. <laughs> Wake up and head on over to our outdated website because we've been asleep. We've been sleeping on it for two years. Um, now, this, this is a good way to kick off this this documentary series. And uh, for those who want to check out more, we are at heretichappyhour.com. We have merch. We have things like that. You already know that. Um, but you might not know exactly what we have there. So go check it out. And I promise to consider updating it someday. Do you have a meme of Paula White that you want to share with the world? It's not going to be better than Matt's, but we still want to see it because this, this has endless capability. And when you create that meme, we want you to post it in Heresy After Hours, which is our free Facebook group for people in all stages of deconstruction, reconstruction, wherever you are. Um, so go speak in tongues, post it, um, make, make something funny, and then share your journey with us. That's what that group is all about. Uh, we have lots of jokes. We have lots of support, lots of resources. So come join us in Heresy After Hours. Yeah, thank you. And I just want to say to everyone who supports us on Patreon, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it means a whole lot. It allows us to keep doing this. And we love doing it. And we want to keep doing it. And your support makes that possible. And also, of course, if you don't support us yet, yet on Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash hour. Um, sign up for one of the tiers that uh, that suits your budget and your fancy, and we will you will unlock so many amazing, cool bonus things and features and interviews and all kinds of cool stuff. Go check Woo-hoo! that out, uh, as well as access to our private Facebook group, the Heritage Happy Our Facebook group. Um, so yeah, check that out, and thank you all so much for your support. I was just on our uh, Apple podcast page and was reading one of the newer reviews and it brought me so much joy. If for any reason you have been moved by this episode or any of the episodes uh, in this podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would take a moment to review uh, and yeah, subscribe, rate and review us. It is how people like you will find people like us. Thanks so much for your support.